This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Biomega Fish Oil from Biotics Research. For over 40 years, Biotics Research has been providing the highest quality supplements, surpassing industry standards. Biomega Fish Oil contains therapeutic doses of vital omega-3s in the triglyceride form, which is highly bioavailable. Biotics Research ensures maximum purity and freshness by managing their fish oils from catch to capsule, verified by rigorous independent testing. For more information, go to drhoffman.com slash bioticsresearch. That's drhoffman.com slash bioticsresearch for Biomega fish oil. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, a podcast very much looking forward to because uh, I get to have a great discussion uh, with uh, one of my uh, most esteemed colleagues, Dr. Leo Galland. Dr. Galland uh, has been uh, practicing internal medicine with a focus on uh, natural uh, therapies for, uh, well, as many decades as I've been in practice and then some. Uh, he's a graduate of Harvard University. He uh, trained at NYU. He is the recipient of numerous awards. Uh, he is uh, a very, very highly respected figure within the field of complementary and alternative medicine and functional medicine. Uh, and he's been really a pioneer in uh, discussing the role of the microbiome on health uh, way before it was fashionable. Uh, the yeast connection, magnesium, the role of uh, certain key nutrients, uh, central fatty acids. Uh, he has really been uh, very prescient uh, in recognizing uh, the important role that they play in health. Uh, and lately, uh, appropriately, he's turned his attention to the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, I recall that around this time last year, uh, when we realized that COVID-19 was upon us, uh, we did a very, very lengthy and informative podcast. Uh, and so it's been about a year uh, since we've last spoken. And I wanted to uh, catch up with Dr. Gallen because uh, he does a very, very comprehensive rundown on his website uh, that uh, details his insights into uh, what's happening with COVID and what some of the plausible measures we can take to address COVID both uh, conventionally uh, and also, you know, some of the natural lifestyle uh, aspects of building resilience. So without further ado, uh, Leo, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks very much for joining us. Great to be talking with you about this again, Ron. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's been a year. Time flies, but also time went agonizingly slow. Uh, it's been a crazy year. Uh, you've been really, uh, you know, studiously uh, taking a deep dive into this subject uh, ever since uh, the inception of, of this pandemic. Uh, and, and you had, you actually issued a very dire warning. Uh, and I remember it well in the beginning that this is very serious. This is not something that's just some minor blip on, uh, on the horizon. Uh, this is going to be a very, very big deal. And indeed, you're very pressing about it. Uh, and you talked about, uh, you know, some of the uh, things that turned out to be right about this, that there was uh, a lot to do with vulnerabilities and comorbidities, that that could shape the outcome of COVID-19 for many individuals. 
so I'm going to put the question to you. you know, what uh, predictions have come through for you that you you know feel like you nailed it a year ago? And, and in what ways have you been uh, hit upside the head, you know, uh, by some of the some of the twists and turns that this pandemic has taken? Well, it's always been uh, a moving target. And uh, in fact, I call the guidebook that I put up on my website uh, a work in progress because uh, it's constantly changing. Uh, I By think the way, that's drgallon.com. It's a very, very informative uh, rundown, and it's, it's a, it is a work in progress. I mean, literally, I check it from time to time, and there's always amplifications and changes and edits. Uh, you, know, it, uh, you know, you really, I think, spend a lot of time staying abreast of the latest developments. Yeah, I spend a couple of hours every day, um, and the latest version was posted on March 15th. Um, so, and, and I'll continue to, to add to it. Um, okay, so the things that were, that seemed clear to many of us a year ago and that have really been, um, been found to come true is that this was not just some seasonal virus that's going to go away, that it is about five times as deadly as the flu. I think the surprise is that it's much more transmissible than the flu because the the COVID-19 precautions that were taken through the winter basically eliminated influenza right. in the U.S. and had no impact on the transmission of COVID-19. So, so in the competition for people, you know, COVID-19 clearly wins out. I mean, it just elbowed the flu aside almost. Right. Right. I, I think the reason there was no flu is that people were being c- careful, um, but about their exposures. Those, that carefulness was not enough to pre- prevent COVID-19, but it was enough to prevent the flu. Uh, and I think the reason is, and this is, this has become clear since last spring. Um, although I saw enough information in the spring to recognize that, that, that the main mode of spread of um, COVID-19 is through aerosols. It's not necessarily direct person-to-person spread. It gets aerosolized, and um, and so people can um, get infected um, even at a distance from other people. And that's something that isn't true of the flu. The um, In fact, you know, there have been these studies, and I studied all of the a lot of the different clusters and micro clusters. Five minutes of exposure at 20 feet can hmm. be enough for someone to get infected. Hmm. Now, um, the the thing that is surprising is the difference between super spreaders and non-spreaders. Uh, probably 90% of the viral load can be accounted for by 2% of people. And there are people who don't infect their spouses yep. and other if, people who are super spreaders. And I, I, did you see, have you been seeing this in your practice? Because I've seen, you know, many these paradoxical cases where everybody in the family gets sick and then the husband or the wife doesn't get sick. And that, not only that, they don't have they don't have antibodies. And I think there was some one one or another study. And there's so many different studies on this, you know, that contradict each other. But one study showed that in household contacts, there was about a 19% chance of you acquiring it if uh, a, a member of your household had 
uh, active COVID, which is surprisingly low, you know, considering. Right. Uh, right. Actually, the statistics in China initially were about 10 percent. In the U.S., there have been different figures, but I've seen it as high as 30 percent. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's in fact the highest that's been reported in the U.S. And it's and it's an overstatement because they're not really looking at secondary spread. The highest with secondary spread within a household is about 30 percent. Now, that may change with the effect of the variants that Mm -hmm. have emerged that are more transmissible. Um, In fact, the variant that first emerged, the version that first emerged in Wuhan over a year ago was significantly less transmissible than the um, versions of that virus that spread across the U.S. and that are continuing to spread. So it's getting um, more. So one of the things, right? It's getting more transmissible. That's exactly what you'd expect a successful virus to do. Mm-hmm. In being more transmissible, many of the strains are able to generate higher viral loads. That will sometimes produce greater illness. Um, but the increase in the viral load, the rate of replication, also just increases the tra- the likelihood. That the virus will spread, and that's what that's what determines the fate of a virus. How how easily is it able to spread from one host to the next? Mm-hmm. And of course, we play an important role in determining that by our behavior. Um, so the the impact of human behavior, the extent of the pandemic, um, the severity of the pandemic. These were all things that many of us predicted a year ago and um and they in fact that is the way that it went there, there were no surprises um this should have been a hundred percent obvious to anyone who was looking studying and looking at this virus um the um in including the ability of it to tra- to be transmitted through aerosols um one of the one of the things that um, became clear last spring was that the main route of entry for this virus is the nose. Um, there may be an accessory route of entry through the mouth and the salivary glands, but the nose acts like a kind of incubation chamber uh, from which the virus can spread either into the brain or into the lungs or the blood vessels. And so there's been a fair amount of research in the use of nasal, nasal sprays mm-hmm. for preventing um, infection. And, uh, and some of the results have been quite impressive. Um, and so I had actually, last summer, I um, devised a nasal spray that's available through that uh, any compounding pharmacy or doctor's office can make up. Um, and, and I've been impressed with the benefits of it if it's used properly. At some of these sprays, I mean, uh, we had a guest on recently who was talking about the benefits of uh, xylitol for clearing the nasal mucus. That it, uh, it, it's not necessarily antiviral, but it just cleans the nose. Also, uh, iodine has been proposed, and you write about it in in your uh, coronavirus guidebook on your website at drgallon dot com. Right. But also uh, heparin. That's an innovative kind of use of something that's normally a blood thinner. Fascinating research 
that led me to that conclusion. And the and the the workers who the scientists whose work inspired me to do that are actually trying to bring it out as a prescription nasal spray. The first step for the virus to enter the body is that is an electrical attraction between a positive charge on the viral spike protein, which it needs to enter cells, and negative charges on the outside of your cells. And the main source of these negative charges is something called heparin sulfate, which is a kind of sugar protein that exists, that coats all human cells. And um, the first thing that happens, the virus drifts by, there's an electrical charge, the viral spike protein attaches to the heparin sulfate, that locks it into place so that the next um, two steps that are necessary for the virus to enter cells can take place. In fact, the original mutation, the one that created this virus, SARS-CoV-2, and that distinguishes it from uh, its nearest relative, the SARS virus, is the mutation that created this positive electrical charge in exactly the right place on the viral spike protein. Um, and the second mutation, which occurred sometime last spring and allowed the virus to really travel throughout the world, was first identified in Europe, spread across the United States, and then back to Asia. That mutation basically stiffened the viral spike protein so that that positive charge was facing outward mm-hmm. more of the time. It, it presents um, itself to the nasal mucosal surface. Pre- and Right, presenting or right, presenting itself to the cell surface for this heparin effect, heparin binding effect to take place. And I go into that in detail in, um, in the coronavirus guide. So it turns out that heparin sulfate is very similar to the drug heparin, um, which is used as an anticoagulant. And heparin has the same kind of charge on it. And it is strong enough that the heparin can act as a decoy and basically neutralize the positive charge on the viral spike protein so it can't stick to your cells. Uh, so basically, the, on the, the use of the heparin spray, the idea behind it was um, to have this heparin kind of floating around in your nose, um, uh, lining the, the cells of the nose, so that if you are to the virus, the virus doesn't actually attach to your cells. It attaches to the heparin. And that's an irreversible, very binding. Is, it, is this and, a, a prophylactic therapy? In other words, you, you, you know, you, if you're going out and about, uh, you, know, you spray your nose with uh, heparin a few times a day? Or is it something that, that you'd use in the, the earliest onset of an infection? Or does it matter? Well, it, I intended it as a preventive treatment. If you're being exposed, you use it to prevent the virus from being able to attach to the cells of mm-hmm. your nose. It is possible that even if in the early stages of infection, there would be some value to it, but I, I've never um, intended to use it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the Now, there are other sprays that might even be helpful in the early stages of infection. Iodine, for example, mm-hmm. which kills the virus. Um, and there, there, 
There's a really kind of fascinating study from Bangladesh, which is a segue into the work that I, into the research that I uncovered with regard to the microbiome, where they had people who were sick with COVID-19, did not want to go into the hospital, use a, um, a protocol in which they took iodine. It was a particular form of iodine called povidone iodine, which mm-hmm. was originally released under the name betadine. Mm-hmm. It's available, very inexpensive, available on Amazon and pharmacies. And um, the the iodine, that, the povidone iodine that's available is about a 10% solution. It's intended for disinfecting the skin. They diluted it mm-hmm. till it became a 1% solution. They used sterile water but that's because they were having people put it in their eyes as well as their nose and their mouth. Hmm. And But you can use regular water if you're just goggling with it. And there actually is a product that's commercially available that uh, called Halodyne. That there's a nasal swab and there's a mount, there's an oral spray. So they it's, did it's, a... Could you spell that? It's H-A-L-O? H-A-L-O-D-I-N-E. Okay. But it's much cheaper just to get the povidine iodine yourself, yourself. Yeah, buy a bottle it. of it mm-hmm. and make it up. Mm-hmm. So um, they had people use the the eye drops, which I don't think are really necessary, the nasal swab and the oral wash every four hours for a month, or just use warm water. There was an 80% reduction in the need for hospitalization, oxygen, and an 86% reduction in the the death rate when people used the povidone iodine solution rather than warm water. Now, the authors of that study believe that the reason it worked is that the virus continues to incubate in the mouth and in the nose, even after infection, even after you're sick. And so it continues to seed the lungs. In other words, a single hit isn't enough. It's this constant exposure. And that if you can kill it there, you can really um, short, short, short circuit mm-hmm. the infection um, so that it doesn't continue to renew itself. There is another possible explanation, however, and that's one that I discovered in looking at the relationship between gut microbes and COVID-19. Now, ever since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been interested in a possible link between the gut microbiome, uh, the bacteria in the GI tract in particular, and COVID-19. And there's been a lot of speculation about it. In the first few months, I, I would find these papers that were pure speculation and they didn't mean anything. But eventually, by the end of the summer, actual data began to emerge. And there are two kinds of relationships. And I think they're very important. The first is that being sick with COVID-19 produces changes in the microbes in the gut that do not go away simply because you recover from the virus. They persist after recovery. Uh, and basically, there is uh, a total, um, uh, there's really a total reduction in the variety of species that are available, a decrease in, um, gut, uh, in, in the 
richness and the variety of bacteria, including many of the healthy bacteria. The second aspect of that is that the anti-inflammatory health-promoting bacteria are the ones that take the biggest hit, whereas some of the pro-inflammatory organisms continue to um, to uh, grow and flourish. That's looking at the bacterial microbiome. The surprise was that in the fungal microbiome, the yeasts and the fungi in the gut, there was actually a kind of opposite effect in that there was an increase in richness of the fungi in the gut as a result of COVID-19. And three particular species were the opportunists that took the greatest um, advantage of this. One, Candida albicans, Mm -hmm. well-known yeast yeast that we dealt with. Yeah, right. Second is a yeast that is a relative of Candida albicans that about a year ago, all sorts of patients were calling me up really freaked out about it because they were reading all these headlines about this resistant invasive species. Yeah, that that kind of made the rounds for a while. Yeah, Yeah, Candida auris. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which is a gold appearing rather than white appearing mm-hmm. colonies, which is which is and very devastating for people who have uh, you know, immunosuppressive diseases. Lots of people on chemotherapy and immunosuppressive drugs. You know, getting transplants. Those are the people who developed very resistant, uh, life threatening Candida auris infections. It was like one of those weird opportunistic infections that they talk about. Right now, no one has yet looked at death from Candida auris or associated with Candida auris with COVID-19, but it's definitely something to look at. And the third is Aspergillus flavus. Mm-hmm. Now, Aspergillus are both toxigenic and allergenic molds. And, and the exact role of Aspergillus flavus in COVID-19 isn't clear, but those were the three species that really took advantage of the infection. The next level of research attempted to determine whether there were changes in the microbiome that could predict severity of infection. And um, there were groups in different countries that looked at this. There were two patterns, two what I would say are two distinctive, uh, um, two distinctive findings. One is the depletion of a type of important anti-inflammatory bacterium called uh, Fecalobacterium prausnitzi. Mm-hmm. No one's going to remember that name. But it, it's it's um, all the rage these days. They talk about it as yeah, being, right. you know, it's like one of those panacea things that it'd be great if you could throw that into a capsule and give it to people. But right. uh, it, it it's not that easy. It's not that easy, Right. 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 Yeah. You can't. There are no capsules of F. prausnitzi. However, um, there are dietary steps that you can take to encourage the growth of F. prausnitzi. So the studies, which were mostly done in China, found that people who were depleted of this particular type of bacterium did worse than people who had adequate numbers. And uh, from a dietary perspective, eating the kind of diet that we generally advocate, a plant-based diet, 
um, high in fiber and uh, especially soluble fiber and in resistant starch, that in, that encourages the growth of f prasnitsy mm-hmm. There are also a couple of probiotics that in controlled studies were shown to encourage the growth of f prasnitsy One is a type of bifidobacteria called um, Bifidobacterium longum mm-hmm. 536 or BB536 is the way that it's known. That's a, a probiotic that has been shown to help people with pollen allergies and children with recurrent with respiratory infections avoid them or get better. And BB536, when it's doing that, is also encouraging the growth of F. prasnitsy. So that's sort of an indirect way of it. It can be, in other words, right. it's hard to administer it, uh, you know, a pill, but you can indirectly support it through diet and or uh, certain companion uh, probiotics, prebiotics, and probiotics, in, in in effect. Right. Yeah. So early in the pandemic, when I was encouraging prebiotics and probiotics for patients, it was with the idea of of, of boosting immunity. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this research, I shifted some of my recommendations uh, towards specifically targeting F. prausenitsi and encouraging its growth. Which is good for so many things anyway. You know, pre-pandemic, there was a ton of research on that as something that helps, uh, has metabolic benefits. It's the so-called anti-obesity uh, bacterium um, and you know, well, it, so it's, what's, what, it's what's called a keystone bacterial species mm-hmm. in the gut, and it interacts. It supports the growth of a lot of other bacteria, and especially has a synergistic relationship with bifidobacteria. Okay, and this is a good point at which to to pause because, as you may know, we divide our podcast into two parts. I want to uh, continue to look at uh, the microbiome. I also want to uh, have today's guest, Dr. Leo Gallant, weigh in on the mystery of long COVID or long haulers, because uh, by now, uh, you're probably seeing some folks, as I am, uh, who've had COVID-19. They may have had relatively mild cases, but they have long-term sequelae that are very, very debilitating. And uh, are there some clues as to what's going on with that? And are there some, does that yield potential strategies to help them get better? I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today's guest, Dr. Leo Galland, uh, you can find his uh, discussion of COVID-19, the coronavirus, uh, on his website at drgalland.com. This is Intelligent Medicine.